the Exton Moss Experiment. Adventures in Wine and Space with Simon Exton and Ken Moss. Episode 12, Doctor Who, The War Games. Hello everyone and welcome to the next edition of our podcast. I'm Ken Moss. I'm Simon Exton. And today we are doing a sort of belated in memoriam to Derek Sherwin, a producer from Doctor Who from the late 1960s and indeed the penultimate producer that was still alive from the 20th century. The only one remaining now is the delightful Mr Philip Hinchcliffe. So we're recording a commentary today on the war games... Yes. And as we've done with other Doctor Who stories, we're going to do the first and last episode and uh, an intermediate discussion um, without being a full commentary. Now, the War Games being 10 episodes has generally caught a lot of flack from fandom over the years for being repetitive. I think this is incredibly unfair because it was never designed to be seen as something that you watch in one sitting. It was supposed to be seen episode by episode over 10 weeks. If you watch it in one in one sitting, and it's, what, four and a half hours? At least, yes. Yeah. All the going between the different war zones does get repetitive. But if you sit and watch it episode by episode or a couple of episodes at a time, it's a really entertaining, really engaging story. Well, this is Patrick Troughton's last story, and I, up until about a month ago have deliberately never watched it. I knew we'd be doing it as a podcast, so I, I've kept this back as um, a sort of a gift to myself. Now, you advised me, before I even got the DVD, watch it episodically. I have now seen, in order to assist this podcast, I have now seen episodes one to nine. I have never seen episode ten. So when we do the commentary for that, it will be an absolute joy, because the cliffhanger to nine is thrilling. Uh, we'll, we'll do a commentary for episode one and then we'll do the digest for, for two to nine because there's a lot to talk about about this story and there's an awful lot that's positive to talk about this story. Yeah. I do agree if you try and if anybody tried to sit down and watch this in one go, you would be bored to tears. It's just because the padding would show out a country mile yeah. watching it one or two at a time. And you have to bear in mind it was originally supposed to be six episodes and because... Was it the space prison? Prison um, in space, which was a terrible story. Big Finish have adapted Prison in Space. I and am, it's dreadful. I'm aware of this, and they've they've tried to make a silk purse out of a sow's ear. It's no slur on Big Finish, by the no, way. It's just a bad not. script. And you can completely understand why it wasn't made. But it meant that they had to crowbar four extra episodes yes. into this. And I think they've done a cracking job of it. It's episode Terrence by episode. And, well, Terence Sticks and Malcolm Hulk. You try making 10 episodes out of any story, you're going to struggle. However, uh, there is, there's so much that's, that's good about this. I will reserve it until we do the digest. Before we start, we have the obligatory. Gin time. What have we got for tonight? We have Breton Botanicals. And it is... Um, it's an, a fairly run-of-the-mill, ordinary gin. It is, however, the first one we're starting with tonight. And uh, it does what it says on the tin. Now, we're drinking it in a slightly different way tonight. Um, because you put it in a teapot. I did. I put it in a glass teapot. Um, Karen and myself have been away for the weekend to a rather nice hotel in Manchester, the name of which escapes me, but they did uh, gin in teapots in China Cups. 
And it's a very, very nice, very civilised way of drinking it. And that is how we're drinking it tonight. I mean, I'd drink gin, gin out of a bucket. Any, anything, <laughs> really. We're, we're, not, we're not fussy. We're all soaked now. Um, yeah, I mean, you're the one that ins- is insisting on being uber British. I may have a, a touch of the nationalisms about me. Gin-wise, though, it's a fairly run-of-the-mill gin, but it's the better end of run-of-the-mill gins. I will give it three Bernards. I, I think it is a good solid three. It's nice, it's smooth, it mixes lovely with the tonic, um, goes down the treat. We're no. just having this one straight. No botanicals, we're just having it with ice yep. and full fat tonic. But it's very refreshing. Yep. Right? No complaints whatsoever, this is a real treat. And uh, it's bookending a bottle of Campo Viejo Tempranillo, which has gone down a treat with dinner. And it's still as lovely the other side of that. So the footings are well dug for tonight. We have got a, a bit of a who fest coming on. Uh, so we shall crack on without further ado with episode one of the War Games. In hey. memoriam of Derek Sherwin. <laughs> The Troughton ones really were the black and white ones properly came alive. I think. I I still think it's a shame they didn't do the face for Hartman. I saw the tests um, and they were freaky as hell. And I quite like the fact that they... These have cleaned up lovely. They have beautiful prints. Yeah. I like the fact that they do these story specific titles Mm. because they do. War games, uh, not war, they do death. war games. They do war machines. Ice warriors, tenth planet. There are loads of them, and, it, and mm. it's a really nice individual touch. Inferno. This I've been watching some of the special features on the disc, and this was a rubbish dump in Dorset, I believe, um, where they filmed this. And the explosives guy had a great fun blowing things up. Um, there's a wonderful story about Patrick Troughton was slightly concerned, concerned that the explosions were very big and he wanted, before he did a take, he wanted to know exactly how big and he wouldn't do a take until they'd set one off and showed him. And they were insistent it would be safe and then when they blew it up, a rock landed exactly where he would have been stood. Um. And was that in part due to the explosion that went off a bit close to him in the Inferno? In, uh, not Inferno, in the Invasion. Oh, and blew his ass off. <laughs> this See, just looks it's, They've done a really good job here. The other thing I have to say about Troughton is that by this point... He was, he was... Hello. I'm the director's wife. Or oh, no, producer's wife, I beg your pardon. Jane Sherwin, though. Yeah. Um, by this point, he was really, really jaded with the series. The the work schedule was punishing, yeah. and he'd made repeated requests to... I think it might even have been him. Barry Letts, again, mentions it in his memoirs. Two episodes a week, or two episodes a fortnight rather than one a week, would be less punishing for the actors. Because mm. um, they were still recording 40-odd a year by this point. Yeah. And um, it doesn't show in his performance at all that he's jaded with it, or he's tired, or he's had enough. He, he's not exactly phoning it in. It's really telling that we've both seen this episode within the, the last month, and we're still absolutely transfixed. Gripped by it. Yes, there's been a good couple of minutes, though, where we've said nothing. Yeah, and that, that's a tiny set, that, that bunk... Uh, oh, the, the, the trench. The, the trench. It is so well done. And, and that, the, the trench office. And it just looks fantastic. It, 
reminds me a lot of Black Adder goes for. I, you can't not be reminded of that. Clapham Junction, it says on the side there. It does. And they do these lovely little touches. It amazes me that of all the casualties in the Troughton era, something that is ten episodes long survives in its entirety. Mm. But it tends to be season by season, doesn't it? Because most of season six survived. There's only one story that's predominantly missing. Which no one's overly bothered about getting back. I really like seeing the Space Pirates. You see... Um, I thoroughly enjoy epi- the second episode. I really enjoy the, the audio. I enjoyed the audio. And I, yet, I remember... I think it might even have been uh, Doctor Who and the Daleks 2. Mm. Again, I will say on record, remains my favourite Doctor Who convention of all time. It was wonderful. Mark Ayres was there. And during his panel, I asked him about the restoration work I said what was your least favourite audio he said my country mile the space pirates it bored me now I it's not a particularly thrilling story but I would but rather listen prob- to that over it's probably a very visual story because it's all space opera it is but I have to say that of the between if it was a toss up between the space pirates and Celestial Toymaker, it would be Space Pirates for me every day. Oh, God, absolutely. I mean, Celestial Toymaker was always fan wisdom back in the 80s, 90s. Celestial Toymaker was this incredibly innovative and clever storyline. But if you watch episode four, it's really quite dull. And Peter Purvis slates the hell out of it. I'm not surprised. Peter Purvis I saw at a con about 18 months ago. And again, I asked him a question on stage. Look how wonderful that set is. They with are. those ripped curtains and the, the, the scrawl on the wall saying saloon yes. bar and the, the damage and, uh, and decay. But oh, it, it just looks Beautiful. I and can't again, remember his name, but all I can think, of, all I can picture him as, is the last surviving cat on Red Dwarf. Yes. I've never seen him anything else, but he's perfectly. Again, used another to this. another beautiful set. It, this is down to the BBC. It doing, is, but BBC uh, period dramas. Absolutely. This is. We've mentioned this before. BBC do period sets in their sleep. They can't. They just do them. And, and for every underworld, there's this. And. Every time I come back to it, I forget just how early in the story the science fiction stuff starts kicking in. I tend to think it's sort of two or three episodes in, and you, you get quite immersed in the, the First World War thing. But actually, this whole thing in the trench, you're really quite immersed in it anyway. But again, look at the lighting. It's not overly lit. It's not... Oh, he really is superb, isn't he? This is... Of all the Doctors, he's the one I could watch in any scene and be entertained by. Yeah. Now, her presence there doesn't really make sense, does it? In the trench, not really, and nobody's really questioned it. No, it, it's more in the, the overall thing, because we know coming on later in the, in the, the story, it's the, uh, these aliens who are trying to find the ultimate soldiers. If you're doing that, why? and each individual one has been brought there by Sidrat, if you're doing that, why do you have a random ambulance woman? That's a good point. It's Captain Darling. It is Captain Darling. Oh, dear. Retrospective viewing. Hello, darling. Doctor, eh? Get this within five minutes. Have a spot of lunch. Not quite as our peers, Quidmas. 
has softened somewhat in the intervening 10 years. Over 15 years. Or oh, quite, well, in the original, yes, yeah. I suppose. 1953 to 1969. It was Quatermass 2 that came in for the most plaque, although to be fair, we haven't watched Quatermass 3 yet. Later in the run of podcasts. Hello. Awfully silly. Doctor Who doesn't suffer very much from RP. Well, not terribly. And when they do, it's consciously done. Yeah, it's consciously done, yes. In, 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 in sort of context, yes, yes, yes. Compared to all the other stories, Zoe's remarkably covered up. <laughs> it's as covered up as I've ever seen Zoe. And or it, most companions. Zoe suffers more than most in the 60s, I think. Susan... Dodo, Vicky, they're all covered up. You know, Victoria. And then Zoe appears in... Oh, baby, the cat suit. Down, boy. (laughs) Oh, we've still got that coming up. Mind robber. Yeah, that's more detail than I need. Admiring the TARDIS console as it spins through space. What a delightful shot. Wonderful piece of direction. Does it down, Carstairs, Fairfax, Cadwallader, Chumley Warner. <laughs> I think he's channeling. Is it, is it Terry Thomas? One thing, I'm getting ahead of myself here. Hmm. But why do the aliens all have child molester glasses? And the doctor's costume's looking particularly badly off. He's got a ripped knee and a ripped pocket. That looks like the top button's bust on his trousers. Mm. Again, really compelling. Am I allowed to question the witnesses? Definitely. We can give you every opportunity to explain. It just doesn't matter what it is he's saying. He just commands the screen. I can't pin it down about what it is. Beyond the fact that he's, he takes it utterly seriously. There's no, there's not a hint of hamming it up or phoning it in or, or just saying the lines. He absolutely takes it deadly seriously. At Possibly the campus marching I've ever seen. And Q, childless glasses. Hello. You will believe me. Guilty. Well, with your childless glasses, I'll believe you. Hello. And Q, camp marching. <laughs> it is a bit. Yeah, it bloody is. Turn to the right, you young bastards. <laughs> it was only in his 40s, though. He's got the craggiest face. And uh, by all accounts, was, was quite a hit with the ladies, though. Oh, the doctor kisses Zoe. You're about to be executed, what? But, uh, no, no, she's, she's just going to be locked up for Oh, no, she'll be excluded eventually. Everyone is in the army. Oh, it's, it's coming back to me now. The sonic screwdriver. It gets quite a few outings in this episode. It does. Because it was fewer from the deep it first appeared. It was, it? yes. And then they basically forget about it until now. I think so, yes. We should do the visitation sometime. With pleasure. That's the closest we get to a bonfire-like story. Zoe wakes up with immaculate hair and makeup, and doesn't need a wee. So Doctor's captured, so Zoe she's... finds the keys and rescues him, all in the same episode. That's quite a record for who. Yeah. And she stopped to get a Mac as well. Oh, yes. What a pity. 
and recaptured within about three seconds. This is all very Caves of Androzani episode one. But the whole story is actually pretty fast-paced. Okay, bits of it may be repetitive on watching all in one go, but it crackles along. I can't... We were talking about Dad's army in space thing. Look at the bloke in the middle of that firing squad. Just ping back to that that bit, because it really is... See what I mean? Yeah, Dad's army in space. Well, he's not in space, but... if well, you, he is. Technically, he is. Well, that's fair, yeah, fair enough. Um, but if you were an alien race trying to find the perfect soldier, wouldn't wouldn't that fail at your first screening? Why the hell would he be in the middle of the Second World War as a soldier? It's Unless like the First World War, but never mind. Oh, shut up. <laughs> yeah, Warmington on Sea. Uh, we've we've got some from the front line. We need some from the, that red, wet island there. They're uh, running around. Uh, yeah, he'll do. He's a thousand years old. He don't teach us how to fight wars in space. Oh dear. Have we reached the end of the gin? We have. Well, before we do episodes two to nine, I think we should have more gin. What do you say? What? Absolutely. <laughs> made about three books worth of notes and I've written nothing I know but you know the war games and I don't and I wanted to be well prepared for this uh, digest um, episode two on even though I've, I've clearly got my notepad out mm. I haven't bothered making any notes for it so we'll not do an episode by episode we'll just do an overview of, of episodes two to nine I do stand by your advice that it would have been a really bad move to watch it all in one go I watched it two episodes at a time and I did enjoy it. I mean, by the time we get to episode three, I've made, I'm just skimming through my notes here. Five extras try to make up an entire Ro- uh, Roman legion. Some truly dreadful, surprised acting as the ambulance reverses out of the time zone. Although there is a, a, there's a nice use of everyday objects in the Doctor's pockets to blow up the safe. They are captured by Nazis with some very RP German accents. The war map shows that Rome and Britain doesn't actually border the 1917 time zone, even though that's where they drive into. Now, by this point, I didn't know who it was. Someone senior turns up at Control Centre and does a better job of being Anthony Ainley than Anthony Ainley, and that's the war chief. Okay. (laughs) Not convinced. No, no, I I was more... Between the war chief, who I can't get rent to go out of my head with, and the security chief. It's more the security chief who just has the most bizarre accent or pronunciation or whatever you call it. It's this very, very stilted, adenoidal. It's dreadful. Well, they are all the the aliens. They're never actually referred to by species. It's just the aliens and the home planet. That's it. Yeah. The war chief's the only one really identified as as being from another race which is eventually identified as the Time Lords. They're all sort of based on the Nazis with child molester pebble glasses. And that's basically it. But he's the the security chief's accent does do a tour of Eastern Europe. It's dreadful. His performance is dreadful. It really does stand out as awful. And particularly in the later episodes, 
when you get the warlord turning up, mm. who acts pretty much everybody there off the screen. Philip Malick, who doesn't appear, and I, I will get to it in a minute, but he doesn't appear till about episode seven. Yeah. Which is quite a brave move to uh, the main protagonist doesn't appear until two-thirds of the way through a story. Um, but hadn't he appeared in the Crotons in the same season? Well, it was Wendy Padbury, so it must have been 69, 68, 69. So yeah, we did it so. as my birthday episode. So yes, it's definitely not. Well, yeah, no, but we were slaughtered. I'm amazed the commentary came out as well as it did for those two episodes. We were absolutely I, destroyed. I can still remember what year I was born, though. <laughs> Joss. Um, <laughs> well, the end of episode three. I've got it in. I, I am going to go through my notes because it's a good way of remembering what happens because there is a lot of it. The American Civil War zone in episode three is represented in its entirety by a barn. Uh, although there is a very nice shot right at the end of episode three of what is later identified as a side rat uh, disappearing and Jamie runs towards it. And it's a really nice shot. Hmm. Again, you're moving to episode four, the side rat, side rat. I'm not, no, not getting that at all. It's a very basic, quite a flimsy set. That is a flimsy set. It's just basically... It took me ages to realise that's TARDIS backwards, but... Well, side, yeah. it's literally strips of cling film. But it does the, the, the sets do the job. The American accents in the American Civil War zone, good God above, they vary all over. In fact, you've got one with a Lancashire accent in there. Um, you've got the, I can't remember his damn name. I wish I could because I've seen him in a thousand things. Really famous black actor is in EastEnders at the minute. Oh God, I feel so bad about not remembering that. He was in the Thin Blue Line. I know who you mean. I, yeah. I can never remember. I can remember pretty much anybody's name. But he's been in so many things, and he's good in all of them. Anyway, he's in the. He's the only convincing one. Yeah, the goggles that they wear at time control are the control. Oh, they're dreadfully sixties. And, and then there's the guards in the gimp suits. Well, uh, he's got to be in there somewhere. Yeah, uh, I've very, uh, very little to the imagination. Uh, sexy black latex fetish suits is what I've put in my notes. Sexy isn't a word I would use to describe it. Anyway, I think they're best skimmed over. I, I think that's the way they were put on, but... There's a, a fight in the Confederate barn between the Confederates and the Confederates, which I didn't understand at all. Oh, no, isn't it the, the ones who've gone over to the Resistance, or, or the ones that have broken their programming, and the ones that are still programmed? It didn't come across terribly well. Yeah, OK. Uh, but that's this is the point where I've said that it's starting to feel like there's a bits of padding sneaking in. But by the end of episode four, and that's the first time I've thought there's a bit of padding sneaking in, that's not doing bad, I don't yeah. think. Episode five, more appalling accents. One of the Americans sounds Irish. Pretty terrible extras acting thrown in two. The commander-in-chief is from Lancashire. <laughs> Dread uh, to think what you're going to say about things when we get to the mutants. There is a certain, and it's the only time I can think of it in the whole of the 1960s. The set for the control centre is quite psychedelic, with the uh, the the circles, concentric circles, and things. You don't really get that sort of 60s feel in any other serial that I can think of. The weapons testing room in Tomb of the Cybermen. Remember the Cyberman costume on a coat hanger? No, that whole hypnotic target thing. But yeah, mm. but this is the only one that's sort of out and out 60s. It, it, that could be somebody's back kitchen in London. Yeah, I was going to say Mind Robber is a bit of a mindfuck, but it's not really that psychedelic. No, but th- I mean, that's just the products of somebody on LSD. I'd say the same about Edge of Destruction, frankly. The yeah. 60s have a lot to answer for. Uh, Thank you. 
Well, yeah, <laughs> product of your time, mate. Product. So, back onto episode five. Oh, yeah, Troughton does some of his best idiot acting, and it's sublime to watch. I don't think you need to qualify it. I can't think of an instance where he's in Doctor Who where it's not utterly captivating. But he does say the line, hoist by his own petard, which I think is the first instance of that, and the Doctor says it. It's not a master's line. In the American Civil War Zone, they refer to machines and telephones, and nobody bats an eyelid. I'd never noticed that. There is a plethora of reused effects. The TARDIS sound for the travel machines, uh, green, according to Jamie, uh, the Dalek door sound when it opens, and the mind robber white robot effects when the fetish guard shoots someone. <laughs> God, I'm insightful, aren't I? <laughs> And those visors that they have with the, the crosses and things on, they're very, very 1960s. Yeah, but they all look like such twats. I, I mean, that is true. That's the one. That's the only thing about the whole thing that it's really let it down. Surely, even in the 60s, that must have looked ridiculous. Coming back, the war chief. I mean, bear in mind, by this point, I I've not seen the the rest of the story. The war chief. He could actually be the master. That Edward Brayshaw. I can't, I can't help thinking of Mr. Meeker. No, I, I look at him and see Rent-A-Ghost with really, really strange sideburns, that whole cut-out circle thing that obviously it's taken ages to do it and just looks so stupid. I have to say, he is... There's and him that and medallion thing that... Which? Ah, now. Ah, yes. Zephon's medallion from Dalek's Master Plan. Is it? it oh, is. and are the guns, the Dravin guns from Galaxy uh, 4? That I don't know. None of this would surprise me if somewhere in fiction or fan fiction they'd retconned him as a version of the Master. I'm surprised Big Finish hasn't. Apart from the fact that he's dead. I'm sure they'd have had him back by now. I mean, it's clear that well, he, he and the Doctor clearly They blether on about the monk and the Peter Butterworth. It's been dead yeah, they've had, they've had two versions of the monk so far. I don't, um, Graham Garden and Rufus Hound. And Graham Garden was fine. He was he did a, a, a very good Peter Butterworth follow-on. Hmm. I don't know who Rufus Hound is. Have I missed out? No. Right, fair enough. We'll move Let's on. Let's leave it there. Um, I mean, him, the, the war chief and the doctor clearly recognise each other. I mean, not a very friendly way. Now, the doctor and the master, or Kashai as he was then, fell out in the dark path. So again, it's all leading into the war chief being the master. I'm sure at some point they've done it. Gary Russell or David McIntyre will have done a novel that I missed out. <laughs> Look at the face. You're doing that deliberately. <sighs> Everyone, oh dear God, I, I was really quite on a downer at this point. Everyone at war control seems to be wearing child molester glasses. When they aren't, they're wearing crisscross goggles. It was the 60s. Mm. And the War Chief Master has developed cross eyes for this episode. Episode ends with Jamie getting shot by the white robot gun effect. Episode 6. Now, unless I've missed something, first ever mention of the Time Lords. Could be. I, it was first mentioned in this story, I'm sure. That's the first, it's first time I've noted it down. The sonic screwdriver is getting quite a bit of use in this story. Yes, because they, they introduced it in Fury from the Deep, didn't they? And then basically ignored it for a year and a half and brought it back in this. I didn't realise it had been that long, but thinking about it, it must have been, because that was Victoria. Mm. As I've got him down here, the cross between Alex McQueen and Milton Johns hasn't been missed by his colleagues for two episodes. 
and although he was in it, didn't have a line in episode five. I don't know what his role is in this story. It's not the security chief. It's the bald one. Oh, the scientist. Yeah. He gets sent back to the home planet, basically, to do his job properly, because he... He buggers up the conversion machine. And there are two extras, in, or two characters in this, that I've uh, nicknamed as Oliver Reed and Richard Maidley. They have a fight in the American barn, and the German McQueen is shot, who is actually David Troughton, who I've got down as Richard Maidley. I didn't know that until I saw the end credits. It was his first appearance on Doctor Who. Was it, he was in, is it one of the Peladon stories? Curse of Peladon. Curse. Because he's the... The king with the purple hair and the stripe. That's and the one, yes. the monster peladon. There's an appallingly acted queen with purple hair and a stripe. Episode 7. The war chief traps the Doctor in a shrinking TARDIS thing. Which I must admit I was quite impressed by. Mm. I thought that was a, a, re- a, a good idea. And B, for the time, quite well realised. Yes. Uh, and Oh, he finally gives them a name, the side rat. TARDIS backwards, sort of. Uh, seven episodes in, the warlord appears... Again, in Child Molester Glasses, uh, Philip Maddock is excellent as always. I, I, I must admit, I think that The War Chief and The Warlord, excellent casting. Uh, I think they're, they're both two very good characters. Yes. Security and Chief, not Not so much. quite so much, but Episode 7 is the first one where it really starts to feel padded. The scenes in the control centre are all really quite good. Everything out in the war zones they all start to feel really stretched out. But if you think about it, by the time you get into episode seven, you are now longer than almost any story yeah. in the entire canon. Mm. The only ones that go beyond seven episodes are... Invasion. Invasion, War Games, Master Plan, and Trial of the Time Lord. But Trial of the Time Lord's a bit of a cop-out. It, it is really. It's four stories in one. Yeah. Let's move on to episode eight. The Doctor is finally captured and interrogated, but the machinery is useless. The war chief finally gets around to half explaining his plan, and still not fully. Yeah, the first real talk of life before he left Gallifrey. Lots more padding. There's a long scene in this with one Mexican, uh, and he's borrowed his accent straight from Salamander, and that wasn't good to start with. Oh, Arturo Vila. Yes. Yeah, it'd be an awful lot better without him. Well, all the scenes outside the war room are just the padding in this episode. The, um, the war room scenes are by far the, the best. I've called it the war room. It's never actually referred to as such. Yeah, it works. It, all the pretenses faded away. They're all aware they're in different sign zones. There's even a map they've, that they've discovered. Um, well, that's because they've taken over somebody's HQ. I know, but it's just all very convenient. The episode ends with the Doctor apparently double-crossing everyone. I mean, this is the one thing that I, that struck me about. By the time we got to episode eight, there were a lot. There was a vast difference between long stretches of padding punctuated by really, really good scenes, and they almost all featured the Doctor. Running theme here with Patrick Troughton. All the stuff in the aliens' base is actually quite tight. There isn't an awful lot of padding in that. Not at all. No, it's brilliant. We get to episode nine. And all of a sudden, all that padding disappears. It's really tightly paced stuff. It's If they could have just gone 1, 2, 9, 10, I think it probably would have been a much tighter story overall. Clearly, 1, 2, 3, 8, 9, 10. Uh, I think it deserves 6. Oh, 6, I'll give you it, yes. The pace picks up the flimsiest control desk ever. It's made of about a 3 mil thick 
block of plyboard. And as one of the guys gets shot, his arm comes down on it and it just bounces. That's worth watching again, boys and girls, for those of you at home. There's the nice box effect of the Time Lord signalling device. Oh, yeah, that's lovely. Yeah. I mean, it, it's obviously reverse filming, but it's really nicely done. But not obviously. If you watch the sequence, a reverse filming is, is usually quite easy to spot. How they've done it is not immediately obvious. You have to really think about how they've filmed it. I think it's quite nice, that. The, the thing that really isn't obvious is that there must be wires in there for that to work. Yeah. And you can't see. You can't see a damn thing, even with it that good quality and cleaned up. Uh, but uh, it's really nice. Quite to a see. great screen. Yeah. Well, it's nice to see that it's being, it's still being used in the Matt Smith era, in the Doctor's wife. They use the same boxes. Yeah. I think that's really, that's a really nice touch. And until we get there, because we, we are now minutes away from episode ten, there is a genuinely, genuinely thrilling cliffhanger where the Time Lords start to arrive and time slows down and they're just about to get to the TARDIS. He starts to turn the key and the episode ends. And I think, as a cliffhanger, you've got me nine episodes in. I've been sort of interested. Now I'm really interested. And with that, I cannot wait. I've not seen episode 10. This is brand new for me. I know how it ends, but let's run VT. Let's top up gin first. Episode 10 of The War Games. This is the first time I've ever seen this in 40, nearly 41 years of being a Doctor Who fan. And I am absolutely wrapped. As far as anybody knew at the time, it was his last episode. These are beautifully cleaned up. They are. That bit's like the sapphire and steel that we saw with the the photos where it's all voice acting yeah, and really compelling. Look at the state of the print. Well, this would have been an episode that was stored at the BFI. That print's just beautiful, isn't it? What a lovely, lovely piece of exposition. The entire series so far explained in a minute. Yeah. Haven't we seen this vertical landing before in Fury from the Deep? Yes. In fact, it's the only surviving clip from Fury from the Deep 1. They're in an aquarium. Um, and where is it? Greatest hits of the Second Doctor era. Terribly camp. Oh, broken our laws, you dirty little thing. I'll come back and see you in your spandex leather. I quite like the fact that his costumes are disintegrating as well because mm. they're ripping the knee of his trousers and his pockets. Pockets ripped apart. And... Not now, 
your travels are over. See, that, that's really creepy. And, okay, we, we've seen Gallifrey any number of times. I don't think it was even called Gallifrey at this point, no. was it? Is it Frontier in Space, the first time they mentioned the name Gallifrey? Why is the TARDIS door suddenly Dalek doors? No, I think it was um, Three Doctors. I think. Could be wrong. Even then, the, the whole sort of Gallifrey music, very deadly assassin sort of... With an utterly callous disregard for the lives of the humans involved... Why are they showing the paintings the rather than photos? Oh, I guess for most of the wars that they have, there wouldn't actually be photos. No, but the, they could take images of each time zone. Um, well, they could do it, except the vast majority of the time zones they didn't actually show. So there was, what, the 1917, there was the American Civil War. You, the, Brit, the Roman Five Army. Yeah you, you, yeah, you saw some Romans up against a hill and a, a wall with a room in it for the Crimean War zone. I don't think there was anything, any other of the war zones that we saw. Okay, Robert's master. Jesus. Now we never see that again. He doesn't like the Eric Robert's master, but we never see it again. That that whole torture thing. Have you anything to say in your defence? Now I, this I do know. He was retconned by Terence Dix as being goth. Not only in this, but in the Mind Robber as well. Oh my. Extras acting, I'm being shot. Should I run away? Oh no, I'll just put my hands up. Oh no, I'll die too. Right, quick, get your leather fetish suits on, we're getting tired. This. Even the ones they were putting on trial. A force field has been placed around you and around your planet so that your warlike people will remain prisoners forever. So, the Time Lords, they do actually appear to have quite a significant amount of power. Yet the, the, the Daleks invade and they don't bother wielding it. You have heard the charge against you that you have repeatedly broken our most important law of non interference in the affairs of other planets. What have you to say? Do you admit these actions? I not only admit them, I am proud of them. Isn't he fantastic? If you're going to end the series, this would be a bloody good end, actually. The Quarks? Same series, though. This is great dialogue. It is, and you know, I, I was just thinking, see this, these clips on documentaries, and you must have seen all of this. No, not that bit, no. But it's, it's incredibly compelling. I know that face from somewhere. Trevor Martin, he was the doctor. Yeah, Seven Keys to Doom. Say he was regenerated from uh, John Pertwee into the fourth, the alternative fourth doctor. 
long boring speech about being a good boy. They, they like making speeches. Well, I think it's time you lost them again. It's a really nice set. I mean, again, very 60s psychedelia. Yeah, and it doesn't make a massive amount of sense, sense as to what it is, why it, why it's there, what... It's really quite sad. Mm. Not entirely. They will be returned to a moment in time just before they went away. So in Jamie's case, that's the he chose not to get the boat to escape Scotland. Basically, and yes. ends up somewhere he's likely to be killed. Oh, that's a nice torch. Yeah. Tanya, right back from the wheel in space. Yeah. With the same haircut. We have accepted your plea. That there is evil in the universe that must be fought, and that you still have a part to play in that battle. This well, is sir, absolutely gripping stuff. We haven't really said anything for about ten minutes. No. Which is wonderful telly, but awful podcasting. It's terrible podcasting. The fact that I've seen all this bit before allows me to talk over it, but I have to say... As an episode of Doctor Who, exploring the mythology, I can't think of a single one that's ever gone into this much depth. Or, I mean, this is this is now nearly 50 years in the past. And we are utterly gripped by this. And for me, it's not the first time I've seen it. I do like the way that fans have tried to wreck on these drawings into other doctors. I mean, the thin one looks like John Scott Martin. How many of the other doctors could have seriously carried this off? I really don't think many. John Pertwee, possibly. What's happened? The time has come for you to change your appearance, Doctor, and begin your exile. No! You can't do this to me! I forget quite how compelling the special effects are on this. It's 1969. They're brilliant. Yeah. I've never seen the ending to that episode. I can't believe it's brilliant. It's brilliant. That whole episode was fantastic. One of the best episodes of Doctor Who I've ever seen. Wonderful. Wonderful. I mean, I'm not quite that effusive about it. I mean, I, don't get me wrong. It's a wonderful episode. I thoroughly enjoy it. Um, I think there are better before and since, but... I know that by this point in the history of Doctor Who, ratings weren't good. The series was in trouble. Yeah. And and um, that may have been the very last episode that they made. And it was a really good ending. It was a great goodbye to all three of the, the main team. But if, I mean, if that was it, I fancy me and you would still have been here talking about that now. If that was it. Because there are other series that have gone on that we have podcasted about... Yes. And being just as effusive about. As an end to Doctor Who, I would have been satisfied with that. Yeah. It's like the Tomorrow People. If they, 
that had had its planned ending at the end of series three, it would have been a really nice encapsulation. But it didn't, and it went on. Doctor Who went on to be somewhat more successful. Terence Dix, I think, who summed it up, that it was too much of an effort not to carry on. They didn't have anything to replace it, so they just thought, we'll carry on. Hence why we got season seven. And I'm really glad we did, because what they took from here and ran within season seven... It's the equivalent of what we're, you know, we are about to come on to in, in a future podcast. The difference between season 17 and season 18 is a, a chasmic change in style. Yeah. The change to colour, the change to... John Pertwee, the change... Earth-based ev- stories, bringing in U- unit again. And without intending to, first story shot entirely on film. Which means it's Blu-rayable. Can you imagine me and you watching a Blu-ray of Spearhead from Space and being blown away? Can you ever imagine that happening? Um, let me mm. cast my mind back a few years <laughs> to about a week after the Blu-ray was released. Oh, that really needs a podcast of its own. Spearhead from Space was lovely. It does look gorgeous, but the episode we've just watched looks pretty gorgeous as well. Yeah, thank you BFI. And the restoration team. Because oh, we know. we really must. I mean, it's not. We've not. We are now. However many episodes into this podcast, and we haven't actually officially raised a glass to the restoration team. Now, this is a self-imposed title by these people. A group of fans who have made an each industry, episode they've yeah. worked on look bloody good and better than it was when it was transmitted. In many cases, I, I was thinking particularly the Pertwee stuff mm. where. They've really had to work with the source material to yeah. to get the best that they possibly can, and particularly the mathematical unpicking of the NTSC stuff. Yeah, you look at something like the work that they've done on the claws of claws Axos. Of Axos just looks phenomenal. The colorization of Planet of the Daleks three, Planet of the Daleks three, Invasion of the Dinosaurs one, it's just phenomenal. I I genuinely, even though they've done, they've overseen pretty much all of the classic Doctor Who range, I still don't think they're given enough recognition for what they've done. They have been instrumental in the most categorical, comprehensive restoration of any television programme that there has ever been. There's nothing on the planet that gets the attention of love and detail that Doctor Who gets. Yeah. And thing things like this, the way these episodes have been restored and they just look beautiful yeah. and crystal clear. I mean, the, these are the best we're likely to see. If there are improvements to be made in the future... It's difficult to imagine I, how. I can't, I can't see how. The only, the only way that those could be improved is if they were colourised. Uh, because, it, uh, there's, there, I mean, there's no getting around the fact that colourisations do bring a depth to things that black and white doesn't. Yeah. I've seen colourisations of black and white Doctor Who, and it does bring a depth. Yeah. But as they exist, my goodness me, episode 10 opened then. It could have been filmed yesterday. It was beautifully crisp. Yeah. And actually, the the whole Time Lord planet and stark black and white and... The black and white judicial mm. uniforms, it completely works. Yes, it does. The, the whole seeing um, First World War footage in black and white brings it a kind of reality. Yes, it does. Because um, you see period drama in bright colour and it might look very grim and realistic, but it's in colour and you just said, you know what, the, the film that exists that you could possibly see 
of First World War stuff is grainy black and white. You see, this it, it brings a, a level of reality. Well, the, the whole nine episodes, the whole nine yards were leading to episode 10 because episode 10 is, is a total misfit to the rest of the story. Um, and I don't mind one bit. That was really, really lovely. Really well done. Uncle Terence and Malcolm Hulk. Yeah, lo- yeah, lovely stuff. Pulled a blinder on that one. As I've said, if it ended there, I would have been happy with that as an entire series resolution. As it stands, thankfully, it went on. And we are still here in 2019 talking about future series. A testament to you all. And producers of the next series have a look back at this and see how it's done The Exton Moss experiment featured Simon Exton and Ken Moss and the title music was performed by the BBC Symphony Orchestra All featured television soundtracks are the property of their respective producers and no infringement of copyright is intended The programme was recorded in Rushton, Lancashire and produced by Maverick Productions For more information, please visit our website at extonmossexperiment.blogspot.com or find us on Facebook.